Welcome to Today in Space. This is the June 18th, 2015 episode where we're going to go over the NASA social weekend trip to the Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. How's it going, everybody? How's your week going? Good? You at work? Hope your boss isn't giving you too hard of a time. If you're on the road, watch out for that guy on the left. Oh, my God, right there. No, you're, you're okay. You're okay. Uh, <laughs> if you're working out, keep, keep pumping that iron. Keep running. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Sorry, it's like, it's like 10 p.m. I've been working all day on this. <laughs> so bear, bear with me here. Welcome to the, the second part of the NASA social weekend episode from uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. And in this episode, this is going to be pretty science heavy. So, um, you know, if at any point you feel a little nauseous because of all the, the blood rushing to your brain trying to figure out what we're talking about, <laughs> pause it. And you can always come back. That's the beauty of podcasting. Uh, or just having something uh, that you can actually pause. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of things Pluto-related. We're going to get into uh, the planet. You're going to learn stuff you probably would never hear otherwise uh, about this whole mission, which is historic. It's the first time we've ever gone to a place like Pluto. And I've joked about it on the show and it's, it'll, you'll hear it talk about in the clips I'll play later. Um, you know, it's still, you know, is Pluto a planet? Is, uh, is, you know, is it a dwarf planet? And it really doesn't matter because Pluto's that cool that it, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter what they call it because it speaks for itself. And that's, if as a kind of spoiler, that's, kind of the consensus of everyone who actually works <laughs> like involved in the mission for this so uh if there's anyone who's more qualified to to give you a definition as to whether pluto's interesting i would say these are the people so what are we going to talk about today uh, to start off we're going to talk about the uh, kind of the morning, talk a little bit about the people, kind of what the event was like uh, at, you know, going into APL, and then we'll get into uh, the broadcast cuts. Now, uh, I do want to preface it by saying I worked really, really hard to uh, cut everything up, but the, the entire audio and vid video portion of this is available online on YouTube. It's about an hour and a half long. It's what the broadcast was. I highly recommend going to see it. It'll be in the link on todayinspace.net. Um, but uh, I wanted to cut it up and do it a little bit differently. What I'm going to do is I've got like 45-second to like two-minute cuts of different questions and just intros from that. And if, if I feel like it's a little bit too technical, I'll just give you my uh, another rewording or, or just kind of keep it fast-paced. That was the whole idea with this was to... Uh, to kind of uh, bring a fast pace, but also try and explain some things if, if I felt they went a little bit too far. So uh, look forward to that. Also, at the end of the, end of the episode, we've got an interview post-broadcast with Kim Eniko-Smith, uh, one of the uh, 
the scientists involved with the New Horizons mission, who I had a great time talking with, and really the entire staff, NASA Social and APL, and really I, I can't say I can't say enough about the experience that I had. It was really it was a really, really great experience, and like I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I would not be there without you, the listeners and the fans of the show. You know, thank you. I, I, for me, it was I think even more. I, I, I knew a little bit more of what I was getting into only because I've done the engineering route. I've worked in the corporate world before, and you know there are social networking events, and this was very much. A social networking event, but it was very, you got to meet people that had I taken the traditional route, the four-year college degree, then applied, became an engineer, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I would have been able to meet the people I met that week, on June 5th, June 6th, that weekend. I don't think I would have been able to meet those people. I don't think I would have been able to have an experience like that had I done the right thing, you know, the the right thing. So it's being on the other side, finally having my degree, thank goodness. Um, Thank you, Lord. It's incredible that I can have an experience like that with people who are all passionate about this this summer. This is definitely one thing off the bucket list, and there's more to come, and you know, I'll be bringing you guys all along with me, guys and gals. When I say guys, just know I mean everybody. That's just, let's get that off. Let's get that out there now. All right. All right. Now you understand the definition of that word on this podcast. <laughs> but I had a great time. The people were fantastic. I had a great time talking with everybody. Um, as far as some of the clips, like I said, they, some of them might have gotten cut out. If they're not in here, uh, anyone from NASA Social, I apologize. The feedback was just impossible to deal with, uh, especially on the time restraint of a week. Um, and I don't know enough about some of this stuff to, to really pull from it. Uh, hopefully, if this show starts getting a little bigger, I can get better equipment. But in the meantime, I'm just working with what I have. So uh, no feedback protection, unfortunately, and there was just a lot of equipment around. I did my best to try and um, minimize it. But what, what we've got here is, is a very good show. I'm really excited to show it to, to everybody here, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's, before we get into it, let's just talk about a few things, a uh, little business here. Um, if you're new to the show, again, this is Today in Space, kind of your entertainment show from an engineer's perspective. I'm the engineer, Alex Orfanos, or Greco. I've been known by both names. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. Now, officially, I have the receipt, <laughs> a very expensive receipt, but I have it. Um, and I just, I love doing this, and I love to talk. Uh, not that great of a writer, but I do love to talk, so this is kind of my way to show you guys uh, the world of space uh, from my perspective. Um, and because of the people listening to the show, I got to go to this event, and I want to bring it to you guys in my own flair, my own, uh, my own way. So without uh, further ado, if you want to get in touch, let me know what you think of the show. 
um, or anything else, any questions, anything you'd like me to cover, uh, you can go to todayinspace.net. You can contact me there. That's the website. You can also email me at todayinspacepodcast at gmail.com. That goes right to me. Uh, on Twitter at ELGR3CO, blah, blah, blah. But no, there's a lot of ways to get in touch. Um, feel more than welcome to. The website also has some options, like you can comment or like posts. You're more than welcome to do that, too. All of those things I'll see. Um, got a lot of interesting things coming up this summer, but today is all about Pluto. Pluto, 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 Pluto. And uh, this, there's a lot to learn, guys. So I hope you enjoy and let's let's get going here and start with what the the morning was like, the people that I met, and uh, just APL in general, especially from from my vantage point. So I ended up staying in Pennsylvania and driving into Maryland to go to APL. It was like it was like a two-hour drive, but actually no, I think it ended up rounding out to about uh, an hour and a half. Um, for, I know some of you might be groaning, but <laughs> it was it was actually kind of enjoyable. Uh, it was a lot easier to wake up in the morning. But uh, the drive there is fantastic. Pennsylvania is beautiful, by the way. I, I, I don't know if, if, if y'all down there know that, but it's beautiful. Um, Maryland, too. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't see a lot of it, but the area that I saw was really nice. Uh, was flying down the highway to uh, Classic Rock. It was it was a great morning, but get to APL and I'm just I'm driving in and I'm thinking wow like this could be, this could have been one of the places I, I worked at or I I could work at it if I wanted to and just driving it this is this is APL the Applied Physics Laboratory John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and it's it's this mecca of new technology, and for and at the forefront of space missions and technology I mean they do one off stuff all the time you always hear of JPL and APL. So just being able to go there was, was awesome. It was another one of those engineer bucket list checks. You know, it was, it was great. Um, now, one of the things I do with the preface is that it is a closed campus. You know, they don't just do uh, stuff in space. They also do some other military stuff. So uh, it's a closed campus. So sorry, but <laughs> there was no pictures or audios from every place. Um, and I'll definitely be a little bit... Uh, uh, how, how you say general for some things because I'm not even sure what I can talk about except for a few things <laughs> but I uh, got there around 825 and got checked in everyone was really nice met some really interesting people right off the bat um, uh, one of the la- one of the ladies I met she works directly um, or Basically, she works with space lawyers, which I was just like, oh, my God. Like, we've talked about that on the show. Like, I can't believe I'm meeting someone who's involved with space lawyers. I was crazy. And I asked her about the space treaty. And, yes, unofficially, it is confirmed that the space treaty is the thing that is it's all that law is being based off of. So we weren't me and the, me and the assistant weren't too far off. We were uh, taking a stab at that. So very interesting stuff. Um, you know, everyone everyone was huddled around outlets. It was hilarious. Everyone had their power cords out, trying to make sure everyone had power. Uh, so that was kind of where you met people huddled around a power outlet. Uh, met students, gamers, teachers, military men, military women, artists, 
chemists, YouTube stars, Twitter icons, comedy writers, popular mechanics writers, entrepreneurs, space enthusiasts, members of APL, members of New Horizons, and members of NASA Social. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I had one bad interaction with somebody. Uh, we went to the broadcast room. Uh, first split into groups, uh, and mine went to the meeting room slash control room of New Horizons. Now, this room, up until pretty recently, was also the combo room for the Messenger mission. Now, Messenger was uh, originally sent to Mercury to orbit for about a year, and it ended up lasting over uh, for over four years, and gave us incredible data about Mercury that we would never have otherwise. And uh, the only reason it stopped was because it ran out of fuel. <laughs> so uh, they did, as, and we'll learn later, it's, actual, it's an actual scientific term uh, to splat the planet. Yes, splat <laughs> for the sake of science. Uh, so up until recently, they were sharing that room. Um, and it was just, it was so cool to, to just be in there because for me, on my end, I'm, I, you know, I'm just all caught up in like, oh wow, like what would it be like to be in here? But uh, for you know, one of the people we met was the the mom, yes, the mission operations manager. Now, uh, it was Alice Bowman, and she was actually the first female mom of APL, which is hilarious to think of. You know, that all the moms before were guys, because that just doesn't really. In my mind, doesn't really make sense, but that's okay. Alice Bowman is awesome. She's pretty freaking sweet, um, and she gave a great presentation while we all sat in the meeting room. And that's where I guess they would use uh, the messenger teams and the New Horizons teams. And they would discuss plans, results, options, and they would give their reports on what they've done, will do, or plan to do in the future. It was a little surreal. It really was. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely zoned out for a bit. Sorry, Mom. Uh, and it wasn't really listening at some points, just because I, I kept looking through the windows to the mission uh, uh, control center. That, and I was daydreaming. Like, what's the day-to-day -day there like? Because, you know, we've all worked different jobs, and I've worked different jobs. And, you know, each company is a little bit different. But what is it like here? Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but more importantly, on mission-critical days or mission-critical shifts, like, how high pressure, how intense is it there? And that's that's where my mind kept going. It's like, wow, I can't imagine, like, the kind of conversations that happen in this room or, you know, or what, what you would see if, if you could be a fly on the wall in a room like this. Now, here are some quick facts that we learned about New Horizons and... Just Pluto in general. So New Horizons is the fastest space mission ever launched, and it's that's still operational. New Horizons launched in 2006 and arrived in 2015. It's the first mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. Uh, New Horizons has been approved to continue past Pluto to the Kuiper Belt. And we only have theories of what the Kuiper Belt's like. We've never actually seen it, but there's plenty of, you know, 3D models and, and theories out there of what it is. 
Um, and basically, we'll write the first books ever. We being a very general term, as I will not be involved in it, <laughs> as most of us won't be. But we as humans will write the first books ever on the topic because it's never been done before. And for the Kuiper Belt options, there's there were three of them. And as we'll find out later, but I'll just tell you here, uh, one was ruled out because they just didn't have enough fuel to get there. So now they're down to two. We also learned a little bit, you know, about the instruments. You know, here's just some of the names of the ones aboard. There's Ralph and Alice, which are honeymooner instruments, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's Rex, Lori, which you've seen all the, the images of Pluto so far. Most of them, if not all of them, have been taken by Lori. Uh, there's Swap, Pepsi, yes, Pepsi. Um, and the VBSDC, or the, what is my, Venetia Bernie Student Dust Counter. Um, and it was built by students from the University of Colorado. Now, uh, we'll get back to what the other instruments do later, but I just want to focus on, on the student uh, dust counter right now. Uh, you know, it measures dust that New Horizons sees. It's state-of-the-art and an instrumental piece for the mission to Pluto's system, and even more for the Kuiper Belt. And it was built and designed by students, and it's, it's out there in the furthest depths of space that, that we've really ever been. And that one dust counter is, is being used constantly. Um, and if we, we get out really far, it's, gonna be, it's already been really useful so that we know what dust is in our solar system. As, it's, as New Horizons has gone across. So really cool, just wanted to, to focus on that real quick, that you know, it's something that students made. Like, that's, that's really cool. So one of my questions to the mom was, do you have any tricks for stress during the, you know, the critical parts of the mission, especially like the week leading up to July 14th? Uh, and the answer was, of course, yes. <laughs> um, you know, some of the things she was talking about were, you know, uh, coffee, uh, costs to sleep in that could be set up. Um, more importantly, people do shifts, which I, I didn't really think of, you know, for some reason I, of course, thought of it as, you know, the, we gotta buckle down, you know, like cram for finals, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, this is professional, <laughs> and people need to be on their game. So... It's going to be in shifts. Uh, there's also hotel rooms for uh, people who live far away. So that if, you, you know, um, if you're coming in for the mission to do shifts, you know, just stay because you're better off doing that. No reason to drive. Um, and she also, and I think this is, this is the most important thing that I got away from it. She will send somebody home if they're not on their game or if she's not getting the results she needs. So, like, this is some pretty serious stuff, and it was really cool to hear that. You know, it's as demanding as I thought it would be, and for me, being on a mission team like that is like playing professional basketball or, or any professional sport, really. I mean, you need to be on your game and adjust and find ways to succeed, you know? Uh, the, coach, the coach will bench you if you can't do what the team needs you to do. And I really like that. Then it was at this point that the two teams switched and we went over and, uh, and saw the, the other part. Uh, not really sure what I can talk about it, but I think what I had, saw, what I had seen was the, uh, the solar, let me look for the name of it real quick here. Uh, 
I just want to make sure I got it right. The solar probe mission. So basically, they're going to go within 10 solar radii. So that's, you know, the radius of the Earth times, I'm uh, sorry, the radius of the sun. Multiply that by 10, and that's how close. So they're going to be, like, within the, 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 first coronal area, something like that. I, they're going to be really close to the sun, guys, like as close than anything else has been. And, you know, so we're in this facility. You know, a lot of the rooms were kind of clean room areas, which uh, it was really cool learning about the different um, the different parts from, from the guy who was there. He was there. I f I'm sorry I forget your name, sir, but it was a really joy. It was really a joy uh, meeting you, and thank you for coming in on a Saturday to talk to a bunch of people about <laughs> what you were doing. Uh, it was a great time. Um, you know, we learned about clean rooms. We learned about you know the different procedures. But the thing that caught me was just like the whole R and D concept because I've I've worked in that in that uh, that environment where you you pretty much are faced with a problem and nobody's done it before because this is the first time it's ever it's ever been done. So you got to come up with these you know unique ways of of testing and and just you know silly things like they, he was mentioning something about uh, they needed to press down a part of the spacecraft um, with a certain amount of weight that they could test that it could it could hold it in or it was to to make sure something fit either way they need to apply a certain force so um, they didn't really know like there's nothing built to do that you can't just buy something off the shelf <laughs> to do that so what they ended up doing was buying a whole bunch of reams of paper and you know they had someone go up on top of it and they laid it down so that it was evenly spreading this the number could be wrong but I'll just say like 4000 pounds or something like that so you know but that's that's that worked that that's what needs to happen i is, i know it might sound like a silly example but to me i was just i was like oh my god like this is like i would love to do that it brought me back to my old job and i was I was just I was in R and D heaven. It was it was really cool to uh, to to kind of see that other side of it because um, you know you've got the mission control room and then you've got kind of the the engineering, the building, the manufacturing of the spacecraft, and it's all it's all happening on this campus. It was really cool to see just how close everything was and um, and just again everyone that I talked to who's involved in these missions are just a joy to listen to. Uh, maybe they set it up that way. I don't know. Maybe they left the grumpies at home. But uh, uh, no, the people I met were <laughs> were fantastic. Uh, God, the grumpies. I'm sorry for that. There's definitely a better word for that. But at 10:40 at night, uh, that's all you're gonna get right now. So after that, uh, we all met for lunch, and uh, the group I was sitting with had a great time with all of you. Uh, we were just laughing hysterically. We were just having a great time talking. Of course, Boston got brought up, um, and I, of course, had to defend my city. Uh, this, of course, not too much to defend because there's really not much uh, fact to a lot of that stuff. But you know, you know, still, still gotta get, still gotta get yours. And uh, no, it was, it was a good time. Uh, like I said, we were just cracking up the whole time, and I had a blast with them. And then, of course, you know, out of the blue. Dr. Alan Stern, the you know the the head guy for New Horizons, 
is like, oh, hi, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, my God, hi. Oh, my God. Like, just I was just in shock. I was like, you know, I've heard your name, you know. And for me, it was just like, this is the brain of the, <laughs> this is the brain of the operation. Like, and I, he's behind me saying hi to me. It was crazy. Um, but lunch was very good. I did enjoy that, and it was cool. They had like a cafeteria and stuff. It was, it was really neat. All right, so now we're at the part of the podcast where we're going to be uh, adding in the parts of the broadcast, the, the cuts that I made, and uh, you'll hear the voice of Jason Townsend. He's uh, the social media team uh, member from, from NASA, and he was doing the the emceeing, I guess you will. Uh, the introduction, so you'll hear him uh, speaking a lot. He'll be the first voice you'll hear on the first cut here. And uh, this first clip will be about the history of Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. First up, to welcome us today, from the Applied Physics Laboratory is Mike Ruskavich, the head of space exploration. Mike? Uh, welcome, everybody. We're very happy to have you here this afternoon at the Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab. We're going to hear a lot today about our uh, journey to Pluto and uh, how we uh, got to this point, but I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab uh, journey into space, because it actually begins during uh, the depths of uh, World War II. The, uh, the lab was actually founded to, uh, to work on uh, proximity fuses for uh, naval anti-aircraft guns. And that invention was deemed as one of the three most technologically important inventions of World War II, along with the atomic bomb and radar. That's crazy. Along with the atomic bomb and radar, the top three inventions of World War II. I mean, that's, that's insane. So, I mean, John Hopkins, APL, they were in it pretty much from the beginning. And doing something, you know, anti-aircraft uh, stuff, and then to end up working on spacecraft, it's kind of backwards, but you never know when you're going to get involved. Uh, if you fast forward just a couple of years, uh, James Van Allen, uh, same James Van Allen that, uh, for whom the radiation belts are named, and you'll meet Dr. Jim Green, who's one of his students in a, in a couple of minutes, started using the uh, uh, German B-2s that were brought over here after the war and sounding rockets to begin the exploration of space, leveraging on the, uh, the electronics, the high-G electronics that they had developed for these uh, for these anti-aircraft shells, and began the exploration and the understanding of both of the of near space. Now, if you have to fast forward a few more years, uh, after the launch of Sputnik, uh, some of the scientists and engineers at the lab were tracking Sputnik and listening to the uh, the radio signals from it, and realized that they could actually track the satellite by listening to the working on the Doppler shift uh, of the radio signals. And then they had to brainstorm to, that they could turn that process around. If they were on the ground and could figure out where the satellite was, if they knew where the satellite was, they'd be able to figure out where some point on the ground was. And that led to being able to solve a really critical problem for the, uh, for the Navy and uh, navigation. Now that's a really, really important point, and I'll, I'll explain why in case, in case you don't know. You know, knowing where something was in space, it was, you couldn't, it, it was not, easy to do before, you know, today. Now, you know, we've got GPS in the ground and, and people on Earth can track satellites for, with telescopes, amateur astronomers. But back, back then, especially with Sputnik, I mean, Sputnik was this thing that was floating around the sky and all it was really doing was beeping, but it scared everybody to death over here because we thought 
that it was something else. So going back to that point, to be able to use that to, to, to figure out where it is from the ground and then guess from the ground, from the air, where it's going to be, that was huge. I mean, especially when NASA first started uh, with, the, with the Navy, they had bases set up around the world so that they could visually see <laughs> where it was. You know, when they were sending people into space, they didn't know. They, they, they had to have bases around the planet. This is pre-internet. This is how they did everything, you know? So uh, just solving, it's, it's a perfect example of how to get into it uh, with engineering is to solve a problem. And APL definitely did that. Uh, that really put us into the space business. And I'm not going to go through all of the, the dozens and dozens of uh, space missions that we had uh, spacecraft we launched in between that. I'll just uh, talk about a few current ones. Uh, we do a lot of physics work here, a lot of planetary work here. On the heliophysics side, we're getting, uh, uh, we're in the full uh, throes of development of our Solar Probe Plus mission. We'll actually be flying through the outer corona of the sun. So you might want to look at that one. We'll be flying within 10 solar radii of the, uh, the sun to understand uh, how the structure of its magnetic field and how the corona is heated and how uh, coronal mass ejections and the solar wind are generated. And in the final clip with Mike, he explains the messenger mission and just really a lot of cool things about it and why, it's, why it was so important. Uh, a little more uh, uh, closer to home, uh, we've just finished the, uh, the messenger mission to Mercury. We uh, had a really wonderfully successful mission, but unfortunately our fuel supply was finite and uh, we did what we call the splash in the surface of the planet uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, Mercury and Messenger are kind of a little harbinger because before the Messenger mission, we knew about that much about, uh, about Mercury. We had seen one side of it from the Mariner mission, the other side of the planet we didn't know anything about. And today you have a high-res version on your screen, but we have a complete blow of uh, Mercury and a lot of detailed knowledge. And that's, of course, the, you know, just the, uh, uh, the visual representation because the scientific discoveries of water ice at the poles and the, and the craters, things like that, are positively mind-boggling. So the next set of clips will focus around Jim Green, the director of the Planetary Science Division for NASA. And it was a pleasure meeting Jim this weekend. Uh, you know, uh, very fun to talk to, very passionate about what he does. Uh, and uh, the next few clips kind of get into uh, really his take on Pluto, the mission, and a few questions after that. Up first to talk with us a little bit about NASA's planetary science and how this mission, New Horizons to Pluto, fits into that is Dr. Jim Green from NASA headquarters. Jim? Thank you very much, Jason. So this is an exciting time, obviously. Pluto is a beautiful planet. What, what we call it, we don't care whether it's one planet. It's a body well worth investigating. It is the archetype of a brand new set of objects. Imagine, in your lifetime, we have discovered a whole new region to explore in our solar system, that third zone. What do we mean when we talk about it as the third zone? Our terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and even the asteroid belt, you know, that's an area where there are material that was trying to become a planet, but Jupiter wouldn't let it. Gravity kept pulling them apart. And then that second zone, the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And now, Pluto is part of maybe 
10,000, 20,000, 30,000 objects just like it. For the first time, we're going to fly by Pluto and get a good look. It's really fun listening to him talk, but I just wanted, before we get to the next clip, I wanted to add in, um, Pluto was actually the first planet ever found by uh, an American. So, uh, pretty interesting. Um, granted, it's not a planet anymore, but again, and just like Jim said it before, who cares? You know, it's, it's, it's plenty interesting enough, and it's the first time we've ever gone into this third zone. So, on to the next clip. Now, I'm often asked, why are we just flying by it? Well, as Mike mentioned, uh, when he talked about Mercury, we did fly by Mercury once. We do that, those are reconnaissances. Once we see what those bodies are like, and we make the plans to go back, then we want to orbit. And then, of course, the next thing is, orbiting gives us high-resolution information that allows us then to land, and then rove, and then perhaps return samples. When you look at the moon, we flew by it, we orbited it, we landed, we rode, and we returned samples, our closest object to the Earth. Where are we with Mars? Well, we flew by Mars early on, more than 50 years ago. We orbited many orbiters. We have landers down on the surface now, and orbiters. And the next step, of course, is we want to be able to bring back samples. So, Pluto, here we come. This is a flyby mission, a historic mission. We want to get a good look at it. That's going to enable us to figure out what those next steps are. And I believe this object is going to be so exciting, we're going to want to get back. And I hope we're able to get back in our lifetimes, perhaps even orbit it. That would be truly a spectacular mission. But right now, we're well on the way. As Alan mentioned earlier in the video, we're, uh, uh, I think, more than the third base. We are moving fast on the way to, to a home. And uh, it's going to be a real home run for us. All right, so let's recap. So if you're going to a new planet, new place, there's five steps, right? Number one is recon. Number two is orbit. Then you land. Then you rove. Then you return samples. So, you know, if you're ever wondering how do we search and get to a planet, um, I don't think you're going to get a better explanation than that. The next few clips will be the questions that Jim took. And uh, this first one, you may not be able to hear it, um, but the, uh, the gentleman asks, basically, what happens if Pluto has water on it? And does it, does it make Pluto more interesting? So I think with that, I have time for a few more questions, if you have any. All right, for those who are in the room here, you can wait for a microphone. Otherwise, uh, we've got questions on the line from Lowell. And we're also taking your questions using the hashtag AskNASA if you're following along at home. First question. If the New Horizons uh, proves that uh, there's water on Pluto or inside Pluto, does it make any difference in the stature of Pluto? Uh, the stature of Pluto, in my mind, as a scientist, it, 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 it's already there. It's already an object well worth uh, ex uh, examining in great detail. You know, the more we, the more we see and analyze uh, the data from our missions, the more we realize the importance water plays, not only in life, but in all our areas in our solar system. 
And I believe the Kuiper Belt is full of, of water ice and full of other volatiles and, and perhaps played a very important role in seeding life here on Earth. You know, we now know through, from our models that the planets where they are now, particularly the gas giants, are not in the location where they originally formed. And that Jupiter's gravity pushed them around very early on in the solar system. That took that Kuiper Belt area and brought it inward. Brought in the comets, brought in the asteroids, and brought in the Kuiper Belt objects, and brought in water. That then, of course, here on Earth, is so essential for life to grow. We're just beginning to realize the importance of the Kuiper Belt objects. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see water ice. I wouldn't be surprised if we see features on it that uh, uh, tell us a lot about uh, uh, how these objects get together. And that's going to be critical for our understanding of the origin and evolution of our solar system. The man makes a pretty convincing case for the Kuiper Belt. I'm, I'm just, just saying. Uh, another thing I got out of that is uh, Jupiter's a bully, uh, apparently. A uh, long-time bully. Uh, just pulling everybody, messing everything up. <laughs> um, and uh, in case you noticed, um, you might hear some, you know, beeping, like electrical beeping. Again, really sorry. Try to get as much of it out as possible. But in that frequency, I couldn't do that without also messing up the audio. So please bear with me because this was a, you know, a little Zoom player uh, in the middle of the room. And there was broadcast equipment all over the place. So... Uh, again, please bear with me. But next up, we've got next question, um, talking about the uh, the speed of New Horizons, or should I say, challenging the speed of New Horizons. Wonderful. Our next question comes from Lowell Observatory. Hi, my name is Carmen Austin, and I'm at the NASA Social at Lowell Observatory. And I have a question about the speed of the New Horizons spacecraft. So I know it's been mentioned today, and we like to say that New Horizons was the fastest spacecraft ever launched, and that sounds awesome. But I've also heard that the Helios 2 probe is the fastest man-made uh, spacecraft or vehicle of any kind ever. So uh, which is really the fastest, and why do we uh, say that both are the fastest? What's the difference? Well, indeed, as uh, the, uh, the little uh, uh, video told us, uh, we stripped down the Atlas, we got as much power out of it as we possibly could, and on launch, it indeed was the fastest spacecraft. But, you know, as these uh, spacecraft move through our solar system to get where they need to go, there's all sorts of gravity assists, there's all sorts of things that we have to do to change their speed, change their direction, to be able to get to, to their location. Indeed, Helios 1 and 2 are very fast spacecraft. Uh, they are no longer in existence. They no longer have any data to give back. They've been dead for probably 20 years. And so we need to keep looking ahead. And indeed, uh, New Horizons is currently the fastest spacecraft in our currently operating fleet, bar none. There you have it. Um, <laughs> uh, the next question um, is really meant for Alan Stern and, and Jim Green. We'll mention that, but... Um, I found it really interesting and wanted to keep it in because it really goes into, if you ever had a question about how these kind of missions ever get picked or, or you know, like what's it like to get a mission like New Horizons to get picked, uh, 
Jim Green went over it very well in this next question. Next question from in the room here. Other questions? So it's been uh, nine years since it was launched. What was the, the planning time frame before that? So what's the, the whole scale from, from Dream to getting that? So it took many, many years, but you know, I wasn't involved in the early part of it, but Alan was, and so please hold that question for Alan, because I'm sure he'll tell you how hard it was to go through the process of finally getting this mission on the books. But I will tell you that, that each and every one of our missions do indeed take a long time to, to mature the concept, to get it just right, and make it competitive so that NASA then selects that best idea. This is really a tough business from that perspective. But when we do make a selection, you can be guaranteed that these are the top missions that humans have ever put together in these areas. And New Horizons is certainly in that category. So pretty cool, right? I, I mean, uh, I can tell you I didn't know that. So uh, don't feel bad if you didn't. I just thought it was really interesting that you know it's, it's that competitive. Um, I think that's one of the things that kind of gets um, pushed aside, most people would never even, I, you know, would never know that. So thought it was interesting, thought you'd like it. Uh, the next question is the last question for Jim Green. Um, again, it's not all of them. If you want all everything, again, the video is online. It'll be in the link. Um, the other ones didn't come through with the feedback. You could already tell I was fighting it in the last few here. But the last question, just in case you can't hear it, the gist of it is... Will New Horizons be able to detect and analyze the orbits of Pluto and Charon in the binary system? And Jim explains just how lucky we are with this mission. All right, one more question in the room here. Hey, uh, so with what you just said about the uh, center of gravity between uh, Pluto and its moon, uh, that would infer that there's some sort of stable gravitational orbits around it, kind of like a Lagrange point kind of thing. Would New Horizons be able to look at what's happening there as well? Absolutely. You know, New Horizons, as it makes its way towards Pluto, is constantly scanning that whole area. We're actually very lucky that the rotational axis of Pluto is lying down more like the plane of the planets, okay? Uh, and then that means its moons are displayed right in front of us. So we're able to then see their positions better, understand their masses, understand their relationship between the, uh, each other, uh, get an idea of how the gravitational resonances are allowing these moons to exist in these locations and not in others. So all that science is going to be done as we take this fly-through fly and get the data. Yeah, so I thought that was a great question. And the, the way Jim explained it with the fact that the, you know, all the moons, you know, the way they're spinning, we'll be able to see them all, and then they won't be hiding behind Pluto. Um, that that's just makes Pluto even more valuable of a place to look. You know, we'll be able to find all the moons. And uh, just as a... You know, an, an insider scoop. Uh, I was talking to one of the scientists afterwards, and you know, they're all you know, all the ones working on the New Horizons team. You know, they all have kind of a diff they throw around different numbers about you know how many moons you know is Pluto going to have. Uh, you know, there's five known, but uh, a lot of them are speculating you know there's going to be more. And uh, the highest number that uh, that's being thrown around is 20. That's right. Some people there on the team think there's going to be as many as 20 moons at Pluto. So 
it's going to be really interesting to see what we actually find. Okay, now next is the man himself, Dr. Alan Stern, the principal investigator for New Horizons, um, and very intense individual, very well-read. Um, you can tell that he was picked for a reason <laughs> to lead this team. You can tell his dedication, uh, and I'm sure you'll hear it in his voice. All right, up next, we have the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission, Dr. Alan Stern from the Southwest Research Institute. Alan? Hey, everybody. Well, good afternoon. Is it Mike live? Can you hear it? Great. Okay. Well, I'm excited to tell you about New Horizons, and I appreciate Jim sort of putting it all in context within the NASA Planetary Exploration Program. If we can have the first, first uh, time step. Go ahead and put the first slide up, Dave. Yeah. I wanted to show you. This is a, a sort of cartoony view of our trajectory across the solar system. It starts way down there by the sun, and each of those little white ovals are the orbits of the giant planets, the middle solar system. You can't even see the orbits of the Earth and Mars, Mercury and Venus on this scale. This is really an epic journey, all the way across our solar system to the very frontier of human knowledge and to the very frontier of exploration. We're following in the footsteps of giants, giants named Mariner, first to Mars and first to Venus, first to Mercury, giants like Pioneer, first to Jupiter and Saturn, and of course, the storied mission Voyager, first to Uranus and first to Neptune. And Dawn, first to Ceres. These are the planets of our solar system. These are the missions and the mission teams that have, for all of history, opened them up from what Carl Sagan called points of light into true planets where, where we can actually write the textbooks and understand what they're about, our larger surroundings beyond the Earth, our home solar system. New Horizons has flown since 2006 at record speed, crossing the orbits of Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, in each case setting a record to that, to that planet's orbit, and is now on a short course to intercept Pluto in July, on July the 14th, Bastille Day, 2015. You see the third zone of the solar system depicted here. The Kuiper Belt is the largest structure in our planetary system, and it wasn't even discovered until the 1990s. New Horizons is the first ambassador, the first exploration of that region. Its primary target is the Pluto system. Pluto is the largest, the brightest, the first discovered, and the most complex to our knowledge of any object in the Kuiper Belt. It has five satellites. It has an atmosphere. It has a moon the size of Texas orbiting so close that they constitute a binary. Four more smaller moons, and maybe more to be discovered, maybe even rings. It's made of rock on the inside, but it wears an outer shell of ice and exotic ices, methane, nitrogen condensate, and carbon monoxide. And those generate an atmosphere above the surface that has winds, seasons, precipitation in the form of, of, uh, of snows onto the surface. We even see that this atmosphere has doubled in pressure since we've been observing it. And we see that the snows have changed the surface appearance of Pluto. We know it's a complex world. If I can have the next time step, but it's not alone. So, I mean, that, that's a lot of stuff about Pluto right there. Uh, it, it's crazy how much is involved, and really, it's almost like being a part of the Kuiper Belt is better for Pluto, because <laughs> it's like the first one we're going to be seeing. But, um, no, there's a lot of cool stuff, and, and it just I love how quick and, and simple he, he made it uh, for those last few things. 
to explain, you know, what what Pluto has as a system. Being, you know, whether it's a planet or part of the Kuiper Belt system, either way, it, it's probably both. You know, um, because some of the, you know, for all we know, some of the the inner terrestrial planets came from the Kuiper Belt. Who knows? I could be completely wrong, <laughs> but the point is that you know it's it's there's so much stuff. So in the next clip, it's so much stuff. Wow, I'm really tired. Uh, in the next clip, uh, you'll hear uh, Dr. Alan Stern talk about some of the New Horizons firsts. And I'm going to be telling you about the Kuiper Belt in just a minute. First, I want to tell you about some of the firsts that New Horizons is going to be making. We are, of course, the first mission to the Kuiper Belt, the first mission to explore the Pluto system. But as you see, we're also the first in NASA's New Frontiers planetary exploration program. This is actually the first mission to an outer planet led by an individual principal investigator and team. And there are more firsts there as well. You can read them. But I actually want to tell you about a last that I'm very proud of. And that is the fact that we are completing the reconnaissance of the solar system. New, Hor New Horizons is, is flying their anchor leg in a relay that began in the 1960s, in which NASA has been first to every planet and opened our eyes to the true diversity of planetary types, from the middle-sized terrestrial planets to the gargantuan planets of the, uh, the gas giant region to the small planets of the Kuiper Belt. Next time step. In fact, those small planets are represented right here. These are actual worlds in the Kuiper Belt, the largest members of the Kuiper Belt, including Pluto, of course, to our knowledge, the largest of them all with the most satellites. But you can see, and these are represented to their relative size with their satellites when they're known, to their true colors and reflectivities. And the thing that I want you to notice is the diversity of these planets in the Kuiper Belt. It's something we don't understand. We don't know why they should be such a great variety. You might think all being formed so far away where it's so cold that they would be similar. It's a mystery. But with New Horizons, we're going to be able to explore the first of these in depth, and we're going to do it in less than six weeks. You know, it is kind of crazy to think about the fact that, you know, when this planetary exploration started in the 60s, that now almost... 50, going on almost 60 years later, you know, we're finally finishing up this, the, the first views of the, the solar system, you know, because Pluto is definitely there. It's, it's, um, it's kind of beautiful, actually, when you think about it. Um, and, you know, the fact that now we're going to go to the Kuiper Belt, where it, it, the scientists don't even know what, what's going on there. I mean, it's... You know, that doesn't make any sense. And that's where we need to go, where nothing makes sense. <laughs> that's where science prevails. <laughs> uh, next, uh, Dr. Alan Stern is going to talk about... Whew, i got to get some sleep. Dr. Alan Stern is going to talk about uh, the New Horizons spacecraft. If I can have the next time step. This is the spacecraft that's going to make that exploration. New Horizons is only the size of about a baby grand piano. At launch, when we had a full fuel supply, it weighed about 1,000 pounds. Inside that spacecraft, which is drawn on the left and shown in a picture taken down at the Cape before launch on the right, inside that spacecraft are all the systems that are needed for the journey. Propulsion, guidance, thermal control, command and data handling, communications, 
And on the outside of the spacecraft are the seven scientific instruments, the cameras and the spectrometers, radio science, the student dust counter, that are going to be used to explore the system. Now, the seven instruments aboard New Horizons are something that are really notable because they were very highly miniaturized to fit on a small, compact spacecraft so that we could get a very fast launch. The seven instruments on this payload are the most sophisticated and capable battery of instruments ever sent on a first reconnaissance mission, and yet they weigh, combined, less than just the camera on the Cassini Saturn orbiter. And all seven, if you turn them all on at once, draw 28 watts. That's a night light. It's amazing. The power of these instruments is orders of magnitude beyond what was available in our technology in the 1970s to build for Voyager. So we're going to have data sets that are just going to be mouthwater. We're going to have surface maps. We're going to have color maps, topographic maps, composition maps, and not just for Pluto, but also for the satellites. We're going to search for new satellites and rings. We're going to study the temperature and pressure structure of the atmosphere. We're going to learn the composition of the atmosphere search for an ionosphere, and do many more things thanks to the capability of this payload. So basically, more information about Pluto than really anybody really wants to know. <laughs> you are going to have so much information on Pluto that uh, by the end of the year or so, actually, no, it's going to take a long time to get through that data. Let's talk about that. How long it's actually going to take to go through all that data. Whew. Um, and quick tidbit, this data is going to be transferring at like a kilobyte a second. It, it's, it's going to take a very long time, and there's 64 gigabytes of uh, storage. So it's going to take a little bit of a while before uh, we get everything. And, uh, but we're going to know a whole lot about uh, Pluto. I mean, every mission that's gone in the new, in this new digital era, technology era, um, this mission shows off just how much better. You know, if you just, from that last clip, I mean, you can just tell we're loads uh, of ways beyond where we were in the 70s. Now, in the next clip, Dr. Stern goes over the knowns and unknowns of Pluto and Karen. If I can have the next time step. We already know a little bit about Pluto from what I've told you and what Jim had to say. It's a binary, and this is our first trip to a binary planet. And so we're really looking forward to exploring that as another kind of first. Four small satellites and maybe more. We'll see as we get closer. As I said, Pluto's got an atmosphere, complex seasons, and many other attributes, all the attributes of the closer planets. And its large moon sharing could almost qualify as a planet itself. It's made of rock and ice. We don't think it has an atmosphere, but we're going to search to see if it has one or if it draws material off of Pluto's atmosphere into orbit around itself. Um, we think that there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that Sharon could be active, geologically active today, from some of the chemical clues we've seen in spectroscopy from Earth and from Earth orbit. So we're going to be on the lookout for those signs of activity and for more telltales in terms of its cratering record, for example, its geology, whether it has tectonism, whether there could be geysers, slurries from cryovolcanoes on the surface, or other things. Some geophysical models even predict that Sharon may have an ocean on its inside. How's that for a while? That is wild, man. I mean, it's so cold out there. You're, you're 
you're playing with degrees above <laughs> absolute zero where nothing moves. Molecules don't move. And we're talking about a, an ocean underneath. It's crazy. It just makes you think, where did that come from? Okay, so in this final clip, before we get to the questions for Dr. Stern, uh, he describes the, the camera resolution and uh, really just what we'll be able to see from, from New Horizons imaging. And it's pretty spectacular. I, I think even without an image, you'll be able to kind of grasp it. He explains it really well here. Um, and also just, just more on just the incredible data that we're going to be getting from New Horizons uh, about Pluto and the whole system. Next, uh, next view graph. This is uh, one of my favorite pictures. It's the best picture of Pluto ever made <laughs> from Earth. It was made by the biggest, baddest gun that we have, the Hubble Space Telescope. But from 3,000 miles away, it's not much because Pluto's so far away. Let me contrast that if I can get the next, next time step here. This is the kind of imagery that we will have of Pluto in just a few weeks. These are images of the Earth at resolutions comparable to what New Horizons will deliver on Pluto. The globe that you see there, the Earth, not very pixelated, a beautiful view of the Earth. That's about the view that we will have one day before we arrive um, at closest approach. And our very closest images will be as good as this image of New York City. And I realize on the television camera, you may not be able to see everything we can see in the room, but that's Manhattan Island in the middle with the Hudson on the left and the East River on the right. You can see, staring at our screen, you can see Central Park. If you look very carefully, you can see the ponds in Central Park. You can see wharfs on the Hudson. That's the kind of resolution that New Horizons is going to deliver when we get there in six weeks. And that's just what we'll do in terms of the simple imaging. When we add to that the thermal maps that I talked about, the stereographic maps that let us reconstruct the topography, the composition maps, all the different studies of the atmosphere, and all the other things that we're going to do, we're going to write the textbook overnight, and we're going to bring you along for the ride, not just on NASA television, but also with social media, with websites, with instantaneous image releases, next day image releases, and we're going to answer your questions along the way. We're basically doing one of the historic missions from the 60s or 70s with 21st century spacecraft technology and 21st century media sensibility can't wait to bring you along. Thank you very much, and I'll take your questions. So boom, there you have it. Uh, great, great talk from uh, Dr. Stern. And now we go into the questions. And the first question, pretty, uh, pretty simply, is uh, what about debris? I mean, <laughs> what's that going to do the spacecraft? So our first question comes from a Twitter user, Jonathan, who asks, what does the behavior of the moons imply for the presence of potentially hazardous debris in the path of the horizons? That's a, great, that's a great question. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, we're being very careful. We know that Pluto's smallest satellites have so little gravity that when they're cratered, the material that comes out of the hole in the ground, the ejecta, gets into orbit around Pluto. Because our spacecraft is moving so fast, even uh, an impact by a, a rice pellet-sized um, pebble or piece of debris from those moons could cause great damage. So we're conducting a hazard watch on the way in. We haven't found anything that's concerning yet, and the best numerical models indicate we probably never will. But we're not taking any chances. So we prepare backup plans. 
And I think what the questioner is asking is about the new discoveries that were just announced from the Hubble Space Telescope, that Pluto's small moons are rotating chaotically. That probably doesn't affect the amount of debris that could be in the system or the hazards to new horizons, but it's a really good question. It's very topical. Now, just to update you, that hazard watch was conducted, and from what the New Horizons team has said, everything's looking fine. So they haven't seen anything that seems to be of worry or that they need to avoid. So they did a tiny adjustment to make sure they're going in the right place, and they're, they're on their way to the flyby. The next question is going to talk about the instruments that are on board that, uh, that are going to test the chemical composition of Pluto and how they work. Wonderful. Do we have a question in the room? Wait for the microphone. Hi, yes. I was wondering what instruments on the spacecraft do you use to test the chemical composition on Pluto and how do they work? That's great. We have spectrometers on board that tell us about the chemical composition. We have um, two spectrometers. One is an ultraviolet spectrometer, which breaks up the light in the ultraviolet brand, blank, in the ultraviolet band into its individual wavelengths so that we can see atoms and molecules glowing from uh, their interaction with sunlight. And that lets us fingerprint the composition of Pluto's atmosphere. And it will also let us determine the density of the atmosphere as a function of altitude. We also have an infrared spectrometer on it works in similar ways optically, but in the infrared part of the spectrum. It breaks up the light into its individual wavelengths, but the infrared is useful for studying the surfaces of worlds and studying their composition. So ultraviolet spectrometer is called ALICE, and its honeymooner is RALPH. RALPH is the infrared spectrometer, which will map the surface compositions of Pluto and all of its satellites. So there you go, a little bit about Alice and Rex and uh, spectrometers. I didn't know there was more than one, so kind of cool to, to learn that. And really, more importantly, what the heck did they do? So <laughs> uh, the next question uh, will be about, uh, let's see what I got here, um, why, uh, why there's no magnetometer, what that would measure if it was on there, and why they chose not to put it on. Wonderful. Our next question is going to come from Lowell. Hi, uh, Enzo Vito, Lowell NASA Social, uh, Angry Riddle Prescott. Uh, Dr. Grundy informed me that there is no magnetometer on board. So to what extent can uh, PEPSI and SWAP uh, measure Pluto's magnetic field? And will it be enough for possibly a follow-on mission? Thank you. OK, that's a great question. So a little bit of background for everybody else. Um, Pepsi and SWAP are the two instruments to study charged particles, plasma, um, in the Pluto environment. And actually, they've been used to study the same thing, those charged particles, all the way across the solar system as we've transected the entire heliosphere from 1AU all the way out to the Kuiper Belt. And Pepsi and SWAP are primarily there to study the gases coming off of Pluto's atmosphere, escaping from the atmosphere to determine its escape rate. But in addition, some of the signatures that they may detect could reveal whether Pluto has a strong magnetic field or not. Now, according to standard theory, small worlds, small planets, and asteroids don't typically have strong magnetic fields. And we made a choice, we had to make many choices in order to get a mission to Pluto 
to not carry everything that you could possibly think of. And a magnetometer was deemed to be one of those things where we're taking a, taking a big bet that it probably doesn't have a magnetic field. So we left that off the payload. But we know that if Pluto has a strong magnetic signature, that will not only surprise the geophysicists, it will make, um, make itself known in the data from Pepsi and SWAP. So our team, that's the, all the particles and plasma, part of the science team, is very anxious to see the data from the closest approach to see whether they're surprised by that. Okay, so the next clip is me, your host, uh, asking a question. Uh, you know, I was, I didn't really know what to ask at first because everyone was asking such technical questions and I was like, like, all right, like, let me try and bring it down to like a personal level, like get to know a little bit about Dr. Stern, you know, um, and <laughs> you'll hear about it in a second here, but uh, <laughs> the whole lead up to me getting the mic, uh, my heart was beating like crazy. I was super nervous. All right, next question comes from here in the room. Hi, Dr. Stern. Thank you for, uh, for taking these questions. Uh, so I learned today that uh, the data from Earth to uh, New Horizons will take uh, about four and a half hours, and then it'll be another four and a half hours before it comes back. And I want to know if you had any plans for that nine-hour window, maybe some golf or uh, <laughs> some, uh, maybe a nice show or a book. Uh, it's been a while, so. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Closest Approach. Um, we design New Horizons to be extremely effective when it's there. Um, we have very fast bus speeds on the spacecraft, so we can take data from up to five instruments at once. But we have very large solid-state memories for, by spacecraft standards, so we can store a lot of data. In fact, we take about 100 times as much data on closest approach as we can send back in a single day. So New Horizons is going to be the gift that keeps on giving. Long after we pass the Pluto system, new images and new spectra will be coming to the ground for the science team and for all of you, for everyone. Now, as we, as we um, make our journey through closest approach, we have a choice that we made a long time ago, which is we can either take as much data as possible or we can talk to the Earth, and we chose to take as much data as possible. So on closest approach day, the spacecraft actually won't be communicating with Earth until late in the evening. Its last image before closest approach will come down late on the 13th of July, and all throughout the 14th there'll be no images. The big download begins on the 15th, Wednesday the 15th. And that, that data does take four and a half hours from the spacecraft to reach Earth, but after one image comes down, the next one comes down, and then some spectroscopy, and then some data from Pepsi and SWA, and other data types, and that'll continue day after day for a couple of weeks. Then we're gonna take a break for a little while, give the mission operations team a well-deserved rest, <laughs> and then we'll come back and start a more than year-long download empty those memories uh, back to the Earth and fill up the data banks here. So pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> but just a little inside, uh, I was so nervous that he was mad at me <laughs> when I asked that question. Uh, I literally, like, as soon as he started talking about, uh, here, I'll, <laughs> I'll play the clip here so you can kind of get this. And I want to know if you had any plans for that nine-hour window, maybe some golf or uh, some, uh, maybe a nice show or a book. Uh, it's been a while, so. Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about closest approach. Okay. Um, so right there. Design New Horizons to be extremely effective. Right there. As, as soon as he says that, I mean, because he's he's a very intense individual, and I, I mean this with utmost respect. I'm I'm not. This is 
no ill will towards him. I, it was just all my emotions, and and he 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 was just he he had a mission he had to explain. So it was a good segue to talk about something he hadn't talked about before. So it was a good back and forth. Um, but he's so intense that it just kind of threw me, and I was like, wow! I was like, this guy's really intense. Because <laughs> before that, you know, he's talking to the crowd, and now he's talking directly to me <laughs> I got all of his energy right at once and I was like whoa uh, <laughs> but after that after that I was like okay alright cal- calm down there buddy you're, you're okay you, you asked a question it's it's okay <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah I was really nervous <laughs> but alright enough <laughs> enough about me misreading a situation uh, let's go into the next question uh, about, you know, where New Horizons will go after Pluto. Uh, interesting question came in on Ask NASA here, uh, asking uh, from Twitter user Ciro Via, who asks, what will be the next object that New Horizons will be visiting after Pluto? Well, uh, after, uh, after Pluto is called for by the Decadal Survey in Planetary Science, um, we have an opportunity to go farther into the Kuiper Belt and study those building blocks, those planetesimals, that the dwarf planets like Pluto, Eris, Makemake, Sedna, and so forth were built from. In fact, we've identified two potential targets within our fuel supply, within our reach, and both flybys would occur in 2019. We can go to one or the other, but they're in different directions, so we have to choose between them, and we're going to be doing that in August. But for that mission to culminate, for it to actually take place, we have to write a proposal as all extended missions do, to NASA. And that'll be peer-reviewed, and if it's well-reviewed, then, uh, then NASA headquarters will make a decision to fund that mission out to 2019 or 2020 to capture that data, get it all back to the Earth. And we're looking forward to writing that proposal pretty much because we think it's exciting, and we think that the opportunity to go another billion miles and explore the pristine objects out of which the small planets like Pluto were made is an unprecedented opportunity that no other mission that's on the drawing boards or in flight can, can accomplish. That's something you, New Horizons can uniquely contribute. And so we're very much looking forward to the opportunity to propose that. And the final question, perfect segue for this last one, uh, how do you choose the next object that New Horizons will go look at? All right, another question here in the room. Hi, Dr. Sir. Uh, so those two objects, what's going to be your criteria for choosing which one you do eventually target? Another good question, and there are a whole variety of criteria that we're looking at. They have to do with um, how much fuel we have to do each mission and how exciting the science is, because one takes more fuel to reach, takes almost all of our fuel supply just to get pointed in its direction, to intercept it. The other one takes about half our fuel supply leaving a lot more for the actual scientific observations when we're there. We're also looking at our ability to communicate, how much power we'll have on the spacecraft years later. You heard from Jim about the, um, the half-life for radioactive decay. It lowers the power every year when you have an RTG power supply. We're looking at the lighting levels, the sizes, estimated sizes of the objects, and, um, and also their provenance or their origin. Turns out both objects come from an ancient population called the cold classical objects of the Kuiper Belt that were actually formed in this very region of the solar system, not transported out to the Kuiper Belt, but formed there. 
So they actually tell us about the conditions there in the beginning. So all those factors go into the mix, and um, the team will make a recommendation to NASA later this summer. And then um, in the fall, we need to fire the engines, because if we, the longer we wait, the more and more fuel it takes. And even if you wait till late 2016, just a year later, both missions would take more fuel than we have on board. So there you have it. Uh, Dr. John Stern, very, very interesting individual, has a lot of, of great information, and he explains things very well. Uh, I definitely want to commend on, on just the way he communicates. It's very easy to listen to, um, and explains things very, very concisely. Um, there, there's not, as, as I just did myself, not a lot of ums. Uh, he's a very good speaker. Um, he, and there I go again with the ums. Uh, then again, it is... Uh, 12.15. Um, I think what I'm going to do here is we're going to stop this episode. We're already an at an hour 15, and we've still got a good chunk of material left. So uh, we're going to do this in two parts. We'll end this one, uh, and we'll, we'll start the next one so that you'll have two episodes this week. Amazing, right? Incredible. So we will... Stop here, and we'll pick up uh, with the next episode with uh, Chris Herzman and uh, Kim Aniko Smith and her interview I had post, and we'll kind of wrap up the whole thing so you get everything. Thanks for listening. Click the next episode.